the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. These are the sorts of exchanges that former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer is probably glad that he doesn't have to have anymore. President Trump, at his briefing on coronavirus on Saturday, along with the NIH Allergy and Infectious Disease Director, Tony Fauci, responding to media propagandizing the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus, suggesting that somehow Anthony Fauci was being bottled up and what information does he have that the Trump administration doesn't want the world to know? The virus actually was cooked up at Mar-a-Lago. Both first Trump responding and then Dr. Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci, he is world-renowned in contagious diseases. And there were reports out there that he was being muzzled. Can you tell us that this widely respected expert, Dr. Fauci, will have every opportunity to tell us the truth? Well, that's a very and dishonest, the, and, very and dishonest question because uh, he has, dishonest. because he has had that uh, ability to do virtually whatever he's wanted to do. And in fact, in fact, in he, he was never muzzled. Okay. I think I can speak. You can speak. Why don't you speak to that? Very dishonest question, but that's okay. Dishonest. I want to clarify, Mr. President. I want to clarify. So, so, let me let me clarify it. I have never been muzzled, ever, and I've been doing this since the administration of Ronald Reagan. I'm not being muzzled by this administration. What happened, which was misinterpreted, is that. We were set up to go on some shows. And when the vice president took over, we said, let's regroup and figure out how we're going to be communicating. So I had to just stand down on a couple of shows and resubmit for clearance. And when I resubmitted for clearance, I got cleared. So I have not been muzzled at all. That was a real misrepresentation of what happened. How about some institutional knowledge? You want to do a compare and contrast on uh, federal response to a, a virus emergency? How about going all the way back to April of 2009 when the H1N1 virus became a pandemic? President Obama was the president then. But it wasn't in April of 2009 that President Obama declared a health emergency. It was six months later. Six months later. By that time, the disease had infected millions of Americans. More than 1,000 people had died in the U.S. 20,000 people had been hospitalized. More than 1,000 had died. This is CNN reporting at the time, per Dr. Thomas Fried. Frieden, the director of the CDC at the time. <laughs> I mean, the, the hysteria and the, the politicization around the federal response this time as compared to a virus that is being compared as approximately like the coronavirus and what the Obama response was at the time. It's remarkable, isn't it? New York Times op-eds, Gail Collins. It's the Trump virus. Really. Paul Krugman backing that play 
in a companion op-ed in the New York Times. I guess it's the sort of thing that uh, Sean Spicer might want to address on his new Newsmax TV show, which debuts tomorrow, Tuesday, March 3rd, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Sean Spicer giving up his budding dancing career to go back to Pollux and media. It must be sad for the dancing community. Former White House Press Secretary, author of The Briefing, Politics, the Press, and the President, Sean Spicer joins us. Sean, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for having me. Give us your reaction to how the press has covered, you know, per what we were just discussing, covered the, the federal response to the coronavirus before we get into more details about your show. The thing that I loved about the Fauci exchange was they laid him up as this larger-than-life figure. He is godlike. He can do no wrong. And then he himself gets up there and says, no, not true. I always think the way the press works, it's like the weatherman. You know, they get up, they say it's going to rain today, it doesn't rain. The next day they get up and say, okay, it'll be sunny. And there's never an attempt to say, hey, yesterday we're a little off in the forecast. Here's the deal. The press just moves on. And I found it interesting that, like, no one said, well, gosh, the New York Times had this big report on there. That clearly is now inaccurate. Or don't you, you know, we, we, we didn't buy into this, but we bought into this for the wrong reasons. They literally just move on. Nothing to see here. Um, it is so unbelievable that they are one of the only industries I know that can be wrong so many times. And number one, they defend themselves to the nth degree. There's no collegial attempt to say, wow, that report in The New York Times was off. It was, you know, nothing to see here. Everybody moves on. This was this is this was this was just uh, what, a week, 10 days after the the leaked briefing of the House Intel Committee. That Russia is uh, already, uh, you know, assembled their reelection team for President Trump and uh, uh, and and they're going to help Bernie because he would be the weakest candidate against Trump. And we got this all figured out. And uh, this is going to be the basis of uh, another impeachment before November, because this is why President Trump uh, has uh, has uh, removed his director of national intelligence. This is yet another conspiracy so that Vlad Putin and Trump can have another term. This was 10 days ago. And then, you know, they had to revise their leaked story after hearing from administration officials who said that's not anything remotely like what happened in that briefing. And then they turn around to their next conspiracy theory about what Trump is hiding about the federal response and understanding of coronavirus. That's why I keep saying it's move on. Nothing to see here. Once the once the next thing gets deflated, it's just keep going. OK, well, it's got to be the disease. And to your point, the thing that I find so fascinating, you pointed out the discrepancy between how long it took Obama to deal with H1N1. His immediate response is to appoint the vice president, the number two person in government. Let's face it, the job of the person isn't to solve the disease as much as to coordinate the government's response. So who better than the second person rank in government than the vice president? It shows how serious you're taking this. There's all these questions about whether that was the appropriate call. Well, gosh, let's see. If you had pointed someone lower on the scale, they would have said that he's not taking it seriously. The person doesn't have the clout. He appoints a vice president of the United States. I don't see how you can get higher than that. It is funny how there is never a win. It's always, you know, if he literally solved the disease today, he would say something about how, you know, all of these jobs are deprived of the ability to solve the cure, and he just costs jobs. Nate Silver over at 538 tweeting out after uh, Mayor Pete dropped out that Buttigieg dropping out may actually increase the likelihood of a contested convention. He was polling at less than 15 percent almost everywhere on Super Tuesday, meaning he was tracking to get very few delegates, but his votes will help other candidates get over 15 percent and get at least some delegates. And that's the key is that you saw this in South Carolina where Sanders and Biden were the only two to get over 15. That means nobody else got a single delegate unless you popped up in a congressional district here or there. Buttigieg was asked this yesterday on one of the Sunday shows, can you name a single state? And then the follow-up question should have been, can you name a single congressional district? Because if you can get 15% in a congressional district, you still get a delegate or two. And so by him dropping out, it adds the opportunity that maybe a Warren or a Klobuchar can pick up a delegate here or there. 
the more people that get these delegates, the harder it is for one person to get a majority of them, and the more likely it becomes that you end up with only one person getting a plurality, meaning that there's a contested convention. The thing about that that cuts in favor of Bernie is as long as Bloomberg is there, and he can stay as long as he wants to spend money, Bloomberg and Biden, Bloomberg runs interference for Biden. Biden could potentially, if he can survive past Super Tuesday, runs interference for Bloomberg, and it just stretches out the distance between the field and Bernie, even if he just goes to the convention with a plurality. Absolutely. And here's the thing. Last time, the Bernie folks were upset that Hillary got it, but she literally had a majority of the delegates. They may have been rigged. They may have stacked the deck against Bernie, but the fact of the matter is Hillary did have a majority of the delegates. This time, you know, the question is Bernie would go in probably not with a majority but a plurality. And then the issue is are they going to take the superdelegates on the second ballot and give it to somebody who didn't have the plurality of votes? And then the Bernie folks really have a problem because they're going to say, hey, wait a second. We did go into this convention with the most delegates, and now you have legitimately taken it from us. And, I mean, I tell you, the fallout from Bernie as the front runner is really starting to be felt in America, particularly among kids of the 80s like me who grew up on Public Enemy. Uh, Bernie Sanders broke up Public Enemy. Flava Flav got fired. Did you see that? Flava Flav, you know, 911 is a joke in your town, the, the shower clock, right? Flava Flav issued Bernie Sanders a cease and desist for using his performances at campaign rally. Well, Chuck D., he uh, is doing an event for Bernie. Well, that's a, that's enough of uh, to get your mind around. He fired Flava Flav, saying we thank him for years of service and wish him well. I haven't seen Flava Flav get fired like that since Brigitte Nielsen did it on Flavor of Love. Where's our culture going, Sean? I guess this is why you've got a program, new program on Newsmax TV, Spicer and Company, which debuts tomorrow, Newsmax TV, as I said. And just give us a, a flavor, if you will, of uh, your new show. You won't let the Flavor Flav thing go, will you? No, it hurts. Um, it hurts. So we're going to try to do this every weeknight. And kind of bring more of a talk show feeling to this. Engage the audience in a discussion and a conversation rather than tell them what the news of the day is. Have a conversation about what's being talked about, how it impacts their lives, what the media probably missed or sort of tried to make black and white that's a little bit more complex than what meets the eye. And bring on people that bring insight. And a lot of times when I listen to the media cover a story, I'm like, it's not that simple. There's a lot more to that. And hopefully bringing some real insight into this instead of having a bunch of talking heads that have never been in the arena, bringing some folks on the show that have played the game that can tell you what's really going on inside the room, what the candidates are really thinking, what the breakdown really is. Uh, we'll add a dimension that's not being presented on television right now. And so we're going to do this every night, 6 o'clock. If people want to know where to go and find the show, if they just go to my website, SeanSpicer.com, we're going to put a little channel finder up there so you know what cable station it's on, et cetera. SeanSpicer.com is the website. The Briefing, Politics, the Press, and the President is the book. And Spicer and Company is the TV show, which debuts tomorrow. Again, 5 o'clock Chicago time. Go to SeanSpicer.com to check your local listings. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the show. Thanks, Dan. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show well uh, sean spicer may be satisfied with the administration's response so far and the appointment of vice president pence to uh, coordinate the administration's response and and engage state and local actors that are relevant. Uh, a dizzying intellect, Congresswoman from New York named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, perhaps you've heard of her, 
She is not so impressed. Mike Pence literally does not believe in science. She tweeted, it's utterly irresponsible. She's very good with the adverbs. It is utterly irresponsible to put him in charge of U.S. coronavirus response as the world sits on the cusp of a pandemic. The decision could cost people their lives. People will die. Pence's past decisions already have. Yeah, literally doesn't believe in science and so on and so forth. Well, that drew the response from Ted Cruz, drew a response from Ted Cruz, who I think really enjoys trolling AOC. And and why wouldn't you if you can get a response from her? (laughs) I mean, she really is uh, high entertainment. And frankly, it's one of the features of a Bernie Sanders nomination for president is you'll have uh, AOC with more airtime on a national stage throughout the duration of the general election campaign. And that can only serve to help conservatives. Uh, Ted Cruz uh, said, uh, tweeted at her, as you are speaking as the Oracle of science, tell us what exactly is a Y chromosome? (laughs) She responded, Senator Cruz, while I understand you judge people's intelligence by the lowest income they've had, I hold awards from MIT Lincoln Lab and others for accomplishments in microbiology. Secondly, I'm surprised you're even asking about chromosomes, given that you don't believe in evolution. So Cruz doesn't believe in evolution. Pence doesn't believe in science. And AOC is some sort of microbiologist, you know, when she's not slinging drinks. Okay. And she tweeted out more, too. I mean, this is sort of embarrassing. Actually, she tweeted out her credentials as a scientist of sorts, an Intel global finalist. These are her accomplishments. A former multi-year intern for Senator Kennedy. That's an accomplishment in science. A cum laude dual major in economics and international relations. Yeah, Boston University is not bragging about that. A former educational director for a national organization. Wow. She uh, won this award, the Science Fair Prize for research involving uh, free radicals. No, 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 that's young radicals, young radicals. Free radicals is uh, what her research (laughs) was in. Uh, Free radicals, for those of you forgetting your high school chemistry, it's uh, an atom molecule ion that has an unpaired valence electron. Okay, yeah, she she won an award back uh, pre-college. And so now she's a corona infectious disease expert. Why do we need Dr. Tony Fauci? We have AOC. Uh, and, uh, of course, this just drew more trolls to uh, to uh, this Twitter exchange like moths to a flame, congratulating her on her prize at the science fair and so on and so forth. Just hysterical stuff. Less hysterical, but equally absurd was AOC's remarks last week at a House hearing entitled The Administration, uh, the, the Administration's Religious Liberty Assault on LGBTQ Rights. Listen to noted theologian in the, the same vein as uh, Mayor Pete was a noted theologian. AOC talk about religious liberty. I'm experiencing this hearing and I'm struggling whether I respond or launch into this question as a legislator or from the perspective of a woman of faith, because I cannot, it's it's very difficult to sit here and listen to arguments in the long history of this country of using scripture and weaponizing and abusing scripture to justify bigotry. 
white supremacists have done it, those who justified slavery did it, those who fought against integration did it, and we're seeing it today. And sometimes, especially in this body, I feel as though if Christ himself walked through these doors Here we go. and said what he said thousands of years ago, that we should love our neighbor and our enemy, that we should welcome the stranger, fight for the least of us, that it is easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into a kingdom of heaven. He would be maligned as a radical and rejected from these doors. And I know, and it is part of my faith, Mm -hmm. that all people are holy and all people are sacred, unconditionally. Except the unborn. And that is what makes faith sometimes, that's what, what prompts us to transform, because it is unconditional. It's not about that it is up to us to love parts of people. We love all people. There is nothing holy about rejecting medical care of people, no matter who they are on the grounds of what their identity is. There is nothing holy about turning someone away from a hospital. There's nothing holy about about rejecting a child from a family. There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law. And I am tired of communities of being of faith being weaponized and being mischaracterized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. So uh, everybody's holy except Christians. Do we we have that right? I mean, you know, if you're actually practicing your faith, you know, and uh, some other faith traditions that would uh, come to the conclusion uh, that do come to the con- the same conclusions on a number of issues she implicates. Uh, by the way, this was all an argument for government-run health care. <laughs> uh, where to begin with this one? Where to begin? Um, I, I just would love the opportunity to be in a, a setting with her or to have her in a setting with somebody else, uh, not just being uh, interviewed in a guffawed fashion by some hack from the media, somebody that would actually be able to ask follow-up questions to allow her to elucidate her understanding of things like Scripture, passages she referenced like easier for the, a camel to fit through the eye of the needle than a rich man to gain access to heaven. Um, that passage doesn't mean what she thinks it means. And, you know, frankly, where to begin with that characterization of so many rambling, blithering diatribes from AOC. It, it means that it's impossible for anyone to be saved on their own merits. Wealth was seen as a proof of God's approval, and so that's what that passage actually means. It doesn't mean what she seems to think it means, which is uh, if you're wealthy, you can't get into heaven, or being wealthy is a bad thing. No, it's a recognition that wealth alone doesn't gain you access to the kingdom of heaven because it's actually about character. You know, being holy, as she was describing. Good Great. Good grief. So here's the thing. Religious liberty, so long as you're not serious about the tenets of your faith. Okay, that's the that's the new uh, First Amendment AOC. uh, AOC's new First Amendment uh, 
no new spin on, uh, on the religious liberty provision in the First Amendment. Everybody on board with that? She won a science fair after all. This is Dan Proff. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back, Dan Proft Show listeners. This next interview you're going to hear is from the morning show in Chicago that I co-host with Amy Jacobson. She's the other interviewer you'll hear. Uh, and so this was from this morning on coronavirus and uh, somebody with firsthand experience dealing with uh, a loved one who was infected. We thought this was important to bring to uh, the nation from Chicago. Updating the uh, situation with coronavirus and its spread. One uh, question that is being asked and looking for a little bit of Monday morning quarterback was the U.S.'s decisions regarding the passengers on that Diamond Princess cruise ship that was held in Japan outside Yokohama. Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's the head of allergy and infectious diseases at NIH, he gave an interview to USA Today at the time. Uh, He was asked the question, was it a mistake to quarantine the passengers aboard the Diamond Princess? His response was the original statement, which is not unreasonable, was that the best thing to do with these people is to keep them safely quarantined in an infection control manner on the ship. As it turned out, that was very ineffective in preventing the spread on the ship. So the quarantine process failed. I mean, I'd like to sugarcoat it and try to be diplomatic about it, but it failed. I mean, there were people getting infected on that ship, so something went awry in the process of quarantining on that ship. I don't know what it was, but a lot of people got infected. That, to some extent, fed some irresponsible extrapolations by the press corps. But certainly now, a couple weeks removed from that interview, We have individuals who were infected, were cruise ship passengers, who are speaking out. One was Carl Goldman, who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. He's in his late 60s. He said the sickest he ever was was when he had bronchitis several years ago. This has been much easier, coronavirus. No chills, no body aches. I breathe easily. I don't have a stuffy nose. My chest feels tight and I have coughing spells. But he adds, if I were at home with similar symptoms, I probably would have gone to work as usual. So, again, it's this is not to say that people haven't gotten severely ill and died because we know that's happened in Washington yeah, two State. Two deaths in Washington. Well, 50-year-old and 70-year-old, both men, both had underlying health conditions. But you can't, right, and you can't look at an individual case and say that is indicative of all cases. You can't look at an individual situation like the cruise ship and say that's indicative of how the coronavirus spreads. It's more complicated. The State Department came finally after two weeks and took 300 Americans off that cruise ship. Half of them went to Travis Air Force Base. The other half went to Lackland Air Force Base outside of San Antonio. Yes, a little bit uh, more of the science here. Some reports are suggesting the R-naught value of coronavirus, which is the value assigned to how contagious it is, is three or more, meaning one person affects three or more individuals. So that's fairly high. That suggests something highly contagious. But again, the severity is uh, there's wide variance there. So there's reportedly significant number of cases in Washington state and, and two deaths. However, most of the cases are asymptomatic with only slight symptoms. So what gives? You know, there's all sorts of possibilities. People on the cruise ship were, were hit especially hard. There are different strains of the virus that are circulating. Washington State local public health infrastructure has, in fact, been overwhelmed as of late. Uh, they initially thought it was just a very bad flu season. Many of the people who were on the cruise ship showed symptoms, thought they were supposed to, but were not 
uh, were not actually so sick. Most of the detected cases on the cruise ship were, in fact, asymptomatic, but the media has been misreporting the extent of actual illness among the passengers. So, you know, th- th- there's a lot of uh, effort to draw sweeping conclusions from the cruise ship or from particular cases in particular states or particular countries, and it's just not that easy. But we have another uh, case study to at least discuss to give you a sense of what happened with those cruise ship passengers and what the our federal government's response has been. And to help us with that is Shelley Conlon. She and her husband, Charles, were on the, the uh, Diamond Princess, and uh, he was infected with the virus. Uh, he has been quarantined at Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas, where uh, Shelley joins us. Shelley Conlon, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Hello. Well, first things first, um, just give us an update on the condition of your husband. He's doing well. He's, uh, he was transferred to the Texas Center for Infectious Diseases Friday night because his test results came back positive. He's not really showing any symptoms, um, but that's where they take anybody whose uh, test comes back positive. And let's talk about, you know, the night in question when they came and knocked on your door. Was it one thirty in the morning? The first time they came was a little earlier. They wanted to move him right then. And my question was, why does it have to be now? Why can't it be in the morning? If, if I'm infected, I'm already infected because it was disturbing. It was, you know, 1130 at night when they started all this and we hadn't packed, we hadn't prepared, and they insisted that he leave then. I refused. The head of the CDC here at this location came back about an hour and a half later, and there was more conversation. He decided to go ahead and comply, but it seemed ridiculous. Was there a threat that they were going to arrest him or handcuff him and take him out if he didn't No. Look, they forced us to come to quarantine. We had no choice. And there's all kinds of legal documents they gave us. There's other things they don't enforce here. It's a little confusing. When we come back, Shelley Conlin talks about the response from our government, as well as the Japanese government, tells us about uh, Operation Return Home, which happened today. More with Shelley Conlin from my Chicago Morning Show interview this morning, coming up next. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with our interview with Shelley Conlin from my morning show in Chicago this morning. So give us a sense of the two weeks that you were uh, outside of Yokohama and what kind of information you were getting from the cruise ship and the cruise ship from governments, maybe ours as well as others. How were passengers brought along as this situation developed? We were supposed to disembark February 4th in Tokyo, which was Yokohama port. And we were notified the evening before that the Japanese government had come aboard and they were not going to allow us to disembark, that they were concerned about the coronavirus. And at that point, they basically took over the ship. We didn't get a lot of information. In fact, they were monitoring and controlling any announcements that the captain gave us on the ship. So they immediately started going room to room, taking temperatures and asking about symptoms. The challenge was a lot of the folks didn't speak English very well. In the beginning, there was just chaos, trying to understand what's going on. Princess, I cannot say enough positive things about the Princess cruise people. They did their very best 
to try to communicate with us what was happening and what was next. And at what point did the CDC intercede? What, at what point did they show up on the scene? I don't really know the answer to that question because it was probably just a couple of days before we actually got off. We didn't hear from the U.S. government, from the embassy or anything for days. And then they started sending out emails to those that were on the ship giving us updates, but they were very generalized updates. Now, when you were on the ship for two weeks, didn't you have a slight fever, you and your husband? In the first part of the cruise, we both had sinus infections. We'd get those a couple times a year, so it was nothing for us. We just went to the ship medic there and addressed the symptoms. That was at the very beginning of the cruise. And was there an announcement made about the decision that was clearly being debated and there was an initial effective quarantine of two weeks and then Mm -hmm. the decision, obviously, to evacuate the passengers, including you and your husband? Right. We were notified a day or two before that they were going to evacuate us. And with that notification, I believe it was in bold print on the email, but they reiterated to us that anybody who showed symptoms or had a fever would not be able to board that flight back to the U.S. We would have to go to a Japanese hospital, which is what they were doing with other patients on the cruise or passengers that became patients. If they had a temperature, showed symptoms, they were taking them to Japanese hospitals. Were Japanese government officials administering the test then? Absolutely. So then on your flight to Lackland Air Force Base, were people diagnosed during the flight with coronavirus? Yes. Although the State Department embassy told us over and over that no infectious people would be aboard this flight. There were people that were allowed to be on the flight. My understanding now that the CDC did not agree with this, but it was a State Department decision. So they had a temporary type. When, once this was decided, they built like these temporary big plastic rooms. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah where they housed the people that they knew had tested positive or had fevers. That's actually uh, Carl Goldman, uh, who is this, uh, the gentleman who wrote the op-ed in the Washington Post that I was referencing. He was one of them that was in the quarantined area on the cargo plane, but got on the plane. Yes, they didn't tell us this till we got on the plane. Now, I understand why they did that. They wanted to get the Americans out of there. But many of us felt betrayed because we weren't told the truth. Mm-hmm. It, it was frightening to get on this cargo plane. It was not a, a typical airplane. So we didn't really know these people were on there or what that room was until after we started on flight. And I think that was wrong. If they would just explain this to us, they had an area where these people were sequestered and understand. So today Um, is uh, two weeks and most of the people there at Lackland Air Force Base are going to be leaving today. And what are they calling it? Operation Return Home? Yes, Operation Return Home. If people started leaving the base already? They're probably, at this point in time, still going through the process. They started at 6 a.m., and there's quite a ordeal of a process. They've got tables set up, and you can only go down there at the time of your wristband. And then they give you, you have to put your luggage one place. And there's just various steps. And, but most of the people um, that are being released were not tested for coronavirus, and I did not know. I thought since you went through all of this, two weeks on the ship, two weeks at Lackland Air Force Base, that it was mandatory for everyone to get tested for the coronavirus before they were released into the public. There are people here who have not been tested and who are leaving the base today. So I don't know the numbers. I know that there's seven of us who will remain here because either our spouse or roommate are tested positive, and so that means our quarantine starts over. Not everybody has been tested. It was optional. We opted to be tested the very last day that was possible to be tested before people left, and that's when my husband was tested positive. With respect to the Japanese government that assumed control of the ship initially, and then when the CDC officials arrived 
in both instances, the testing was optional? Somewhat. On the ship, they took more of a different approach. First of all, anybody showing symptoms or, or who had a fever. The fever seems to be the basis for looking out for this, the symptoms. So if you had a fever, had symptoms, you were tested first by the Japanese government on the ship. Then they tried to, I think because of the volume of people, then they started testing anybody who was, I think it was 80 and over. So then they went around and tested those people. Then they went around and tested those 70 and over. Right. So that's how they approached it on the ship. Well, I'm 62, my husband's 63. By the time they got to us, it was the day we were leaving, hmm. actually boarding the ship. So they didn't test us. So we weren't tested on the ship. Do you I regret? Oh, I'm sorry. Do you regret being tested? Because you said you know you wanted to be a reliable. I don't you know. regret being tested because I, we live in an over 55 community in Phoenix now. We moved from Chicago several years ago. We did not want to go back to that community if there was any chance that we had this virus. We did not. Most of those people are in their 70s and 80s. We did not want to be responsible for possibly giving in the virus. We don't regret it. And so even at this stage, even in this uh, quarantine at uh, U.S. Air Force Base, the testing is still uh, optional. That's correct. Interesting. Uh, She is Shelly Conlin. Uh, She and her husband, Charles, uh, who's from Arlington Heights, as I understand it. Hersey High School grid. Oh, there you go. All right. The Hersey connection, Hersey and Mafia. Uh, They are in Texas now, and hopefully uh, Charles will get uh, back to full strength very soon and they can return to Phoenix. Shelly, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your experience. We appreciate it. Thank you. back to the Dan Prof Show. So Saturday Night Live actually had a pretty good send-up of uh, you know, a press briefing on coronavirus, first having fun at Mike Pence's expense, but to their credit, in a rare occasion, having fun at the expense of a number of the Dem presidential candidates who all showed up to the briefing to try to uh, you know force their way in and get some stage time, starting with uh, Joe Biden, played by John Mulvaney, actually a Chicagoan stand-up comedian originally from Chicago who was hosting Saturday Night Live and uh, played uh, Woody Harrelson playing Joe Biden. This is pretty good, actually. Thank you, thank you, thank you, South Carolina! That's the actual Joe Biden. Here's the impersonator. Guess who just kicked butt in South Cracker Barrel? (laughs) Joe Biden? You look different. Yeah, the surgery is starting to settle. Now listen, folks. If we want to fight China cough, we got to be smart. We got to make sure to get new teeth daily. Now, here's an honest to goodness true story based loosely on fake events. 
The year was 19 Ricky Ticky Tavi. And me and Nelson Mandela were palling around South Africa Green Book style. We have one elephant between us, and who do we run into but the Ebola monkey? And weird story longer, I wrestled that sucker to mercy. Beep, bop, bip. That's how I convinced Mandela that Whitey was okay. <laughs> That's not bad. I mean, uh, you know, you listen to Joe Biden on with uh, Chris Wallace this weekend trying to uh, uh, recast the Mandela story that, you know, that was a figment of his imagination. Well, he suggests a figment of misspeaking. Here's uh, here's Biden on, on that. Mr. Vice President, I don't especially like asking you about this, but it is an issue in the campaign, and that has been your sometimes shaky performance on the campaign trail. Here's a story that you told at least three times about Nelson Mandela. Take a look. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our U.N. ambassador on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. You now say you weren't arrested and it didn't happen in Soweto. You were at the airport in Johannesburg and you were stopped from going through the door for blacks. I guess the question is, were you confused or were you just trying to embellish a story? No. No, what I was trying to what I was doing was talking about the fact that I was strongly opposed to apartheid. When we landed in the first we were going to Soweto, actually, we landed in Johannesburg and uh, the the Afrikaners took me off the plane took me in one direction, wanted me to go through a white only door. And in fact, I wouldn't move. I said everybody else is going through another. door. I'm going with the with with the with the with the black delegation that I came with. They said, no, you can't. I said, well, I'm standing here. I'm not going to move and they would not let me move anywhere so i guess i should have said i was i was i was detained uh, i was not able to move forward so what they finally did was they went out and they cleared out a baggage claim area took us all up through uh through the baggage claim area up and cleared out a restaurant and then you confuse that with being arrested oh okay joe right From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, there are some cases that you remember uh, that become emblematic of a larger societal problem that put a face on public officials' malfeasance. Kate Steinley is such a case, for example, the young woman who was murdered in San Francisco by a person who had been in and out of this country uh, illegally and deported many times, should have never been in the country, shouldn't have had a weapon, shouldn't have taken Kate Steinley's life. If we were serious about border security, that individual wouldn't have been in the country. Kate Steinley would be alive. Well, there's a case out of Chicago that bubbled to the surface this weekend that I also want you to remember and share liberally within your circles of influence on social media and the like. The only thing I ask you to to do liberally, because I think it's another case that's emblematic of the patently absurd disregard for the lives of people in this country legally, American citizens, legal permanent residents and the like, visa holders, legitimate visa holders, the patently 
absurd lack of concern for the lives of non-illegal immigrants. I guess that's how we have to refer to them. Illegal immigrant is at the top of the food chain in terms of public services and political protection in sanctuary cities and counties and states. And then there's convicted felon, illegal immigrant. And then there's American citizen and permanent resident and other people who are legally here and otherwise law abiding. That's the rank order priority for mayors around the country like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Don't believe me? Let me tell you the story of a three-year-old who is unnamed, three-year-old girl, who was allegedly raped in the bathroom of a McDonald's in the city center in Chicago. The person arrested and now being held without bail is an illegal immigrant, convicted felon, who was in Chicago police custody less than a year ago in June of 2019, but released with no contact with ICE because Chicago is a sanctuary city in Cook County, which is a sanctuary state in Illinois, uh, with a sanctuary county, I should say, in Illinois, which is a sanctuary state. In December of 14, the individual who's charged with raping a three year old girl was deported to Mexico pursuant to an administrative removal order. He's a convicted aggravated felon due to his previous felony burglary conviction. Five days later, he came back to the border, claimed to be a U.S. citizen, presented a birth certificate. Then he was charged with falsely claiming citizenship, served a note to appear before an immigration judge, didn't appear, and he was ordered removed in absentia on March 30th of 2017. Then in 2019, somehow back in the country, in Chicago, placed in Chicago police custody after he was arrested for theft. And his criminal record, by the way, I'm just giving you some recent examples. His criminal record dates back 20 years. Multiple convicted felons. Chicago police were expected to hold Puente until he could be taken into their custody in June of last year, and they didn't. And that gave this individual, I don't really want to say his name, I said it, but I don't like to profile these criminals, predators. This individual was provided, therefore, the opportunity to prey on this three-year-old girl, allegedly rape a three-year-old girl, while his dad, her dad, excuse me, was managing her and his son you know, in the various bathrooms, he took took his son in the bathroom, tells his daughter to stay out of the boy's bathroom and he'll be right back and so on and so forth. The response from Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, I mean, just in case you think I'm overstating how cavalier is the attitude of these officials. And, and remember, sanctuary cities, um, last statistic I saw, more than 500 sanctuary cities jurisdictions in this country. So this isn't just a Chicago problem, as we know by now. This is happening in a community in which you live or in a community near where you live for most of the country. Listen to Lori Lightfoot, one of the great uh, spokesbeings for the radical, progressive, identitarian left. Who's she concerned about? She's concerned about the man accused of raping a three-year-old and the way in which he was taken into custody by ICE. I assume that's coming because I had a conversation uh, with the uh, director of ICE last week to talk about why it was that he decided to um, arrest this person after he um, dropped off his daughter at school in front of an entire school community and traumatizing them. So we had a very candid and blunt conversation. I'm former federal prosecutor. I know how surveillance is done. And really, if they believe that there was a serious issue around sexual assault, 
why did they wait until he left his home with a child? They could have done that at any point along uh, the line, and particularly in the home, because I'm sure they were doing surveillance of him. So, look, they're critical because we have said very clearly we are a welcoming city, we're a sanctuary city. Chicago Police Department will not cooperate with ICE on any immigration-related um, business, and that's affected their ability um, to conduct immigration raids across the city. But that's exactly our intention. We have to make sure that our police department is seen as a legitimate force in all communities, and we cannot do that if we're participating in, in raids with a weaponized and politicized ICE. We're not doing that in Chicago. You know when else they could have taken him into custody, Mayor? In June of 2019, before he allegedly raped a three-year-old girl. That's also when ICE could have taken him into custody, couldn't they? Lightfoot saying, if ICE is complaining, then they should do their job better. Just as you heard her say that Chicago and Chicago police, by direction of the mayor, is running interference for illegal immigrant criminals, running interference. But if ICE is complaining, they should do their job better. What's the... And in other realms, we hear about uh, the need for interagency cooperation, you know, law enforcement's left hand knowing what law enforcement's right hand is doing and so on and so forth. We celebrate interagency cooperation that leads to drug busts and arrests and so forth, except here. I'd love to get um, the parents of the, the victim to respond to if ICE is complaining, then they should do their job better. Is it ICE's fault? What happened? Or is it the law enforcement agency? and uh, the political civilian leadership of that agency that had a chance to remove a convicted felon from the, from the streets of Chicago and the streets of America and chose not to do it for ideological reasons. Lori Lightfoot went on to also say the Chicago Police Department remains committed to protecting all Chicago res- residents regardless of their information uh, regardless of their immigration status. <laughs> really? How do you square that with uh the choice that you made in this case and that you say you're going to make as a matter of course in all cases. Let me translate uh, Lori Lightfoot's statement for you because you'll hear it from other politicians around the country, too. You do. The translation is the Chicago Police Department remains committed to protecting or the translation of that statement that remains committed to protecting all Chicago residents regardless of their immigration status. The Chicago Police Department has been directed to protect illegal immigrant felons at the expense of American citizens living in Chicago. That's actually what happened in this case. So you can make all of the public pronouncements you want. Then we watch what you do, what the result is. And uh, it was just last week, by the way, that uh, the Second uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in New York overturned a lower court ruling that would uh, prevent the Trump administration in its fight against sanctuary jurisdictions from denying grant money to states that refuse to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. They reversed it. So the Trump administration can do it. And I hope Attorney General Barr and President Trump use Chicago as the example to send the message that will ostensibly reverberate throughout the country in those 500 plus sanctuary jurisdictions. Uh, We're going to use what we are, uh, the, the, the tools we have under color of law, per court decisions like the second district, uh, the second circuit court of appeals decision, uh, you're defunded. You think you have good federal relationships. You have no federal relationships. We're done. You want to take the law into your own hands, then you're going to suffer the consequences or your jurisdictions are. And in a city like Chicago and a county like Cook and a state like Illinois, looking for every revenue stream it can find to prop up this financial 
the, the various financial house of cards, that would be felt, and it should be felt, the same way that uh, you have to attach consequences if you want to modify behavior or if you want to send a signal that you're serious about the positions you're taking. Attorney General Barr, a couple of weeks back, seemed to indicate that, look, we're willing to look at uh, criminal charges with respect to public officials or anyone else who in- interferes with obstructs justice, aids and abets criminals. Uh, I hope they keep a close watch on the politicians in Chicago and Cook County and Illinois and elsewhere. Start with the money and then take out people who think they're entitled to vigilante justice because they got elected to a public office. Lori Lightfoot Chicago could be ground zero for that sort of law enforcement, uh, that sort of demonstration of who controls the purse strings at the federal level. Who is willing to cinch them tight if you're going to be a vigilante just, uh, you know, a vigilante in public office? It's long overdue. And I know the Trump administration has been litigating these various issues, are litigating the public charge directive in court as well. But you have a real case to make a real example of Chicago and of all these sanctuary jurisdictions and strike a blow for the rule of law for all, all people in America and uh, equal protection under the law, too, for all people in America. This is the Dan Proctor. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Moving from the lack of federal, state, and local coordination when it comes to immigration policy. Uh, Now we move to actual federal, state, and local integration when it comes to stopping the spread of the coronavirus. Mike Pence, vice president, gave a extended interview to Maria Bartiroma over the weekend, which he uh, laid out what the administration is doing, where the coordinated response stands, and a range of strategies and tactics, uh, tactics like uh, the new travel restrictions, Pence explained. We used what's called Section 212F with China to suspend all travel back into the United States by non-citizens or legal residents. And the president's using that authority with regard to Iran. We're, we're banning all travel into the United States. Even foreign nationals that have visited Iran in the last 14 days will be stopped at our border, will not be allowed to come into the United States. But for Italy and South Korea that are seeing a rising number of coronavirus cases, the president wanted to use the authority to issue a travel advisory. It's called Level 4 to tell the American people do not travel to those affected areas in Italy and in South Korea. But we're also making that connected to uh, a, a screening process that we've already initiated discussions with both countries. And Pence also uh, discussed testing. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, former FDA director, who had been uh, promoting the idea for the last week that the administration needs to eliminate the bottlenecks at FDA and CDC when it comes to the distribution of diagnostic diagnostic test kits uh, uh, and or the allowance of laboratory-developed tests at the 
local level to test for uh, coronavirus. Uh, that is now happening, Pence explained. As the director of the FDA announced yesterday, we, we have now approved uh, a, a new arrangements that, so that states can conduct these tests on their own. But as we speak, uh, literally more than 15,000 kits are going out uh, to the relevant areas, and we'll soon be sending another 50,000 that are going to be made commercially available out to states. So the test kits out and testing at airports in. We've actually screened 47,000 people coming through designated airports uh, in the country and, um, and, and done testing at airports. But the new challenges that we have is we want to make testing kits available to local health care providers so that if someone presents with a respiratory illness, that they'll not only be tested for the flu, but they'll also be tested uh, for the coronavirus. And the vice president saying, look, of course, we expect more cases. Uh, even uh, and in part because so many people that have tested uh, positive for the virus are asymptomatic. Um, But we're ready. I don't want to I don't want to put numbers on it, but there'll be more cases. But I want to assure your viewers and people across this country that we're ready. And the the reality is that, that the United States is more prepared than any other nation in the world. And as it comes to as it comes uh, to, to some of the histrionics associated with the administration's response and associated with the virus generally, uh, you're actually having some sensible things said from some unusual quarters when it comes to sensible things. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, well, Tim Cook, I mean, he's a sharp businessman, but he's also a progressive in terms of his politics, or at least he plays one for the purposes of uh, keeping the peace at Apple. Uh, he uh, told CNBC that uh, he uh, was optimistic that China has the coronavirus situation under control, that it's improving. He's optimistic that uh, Apple's supply chain will not be significantly disrupted. And uh, you know, he said, when you look at the parts that are done in China, we have reopened factories. So the factories are working, are working through the conditions to open um, Talked about the numbers of uh, those infected in China coming uh, down each day. Uh, and so he's very optimistic. So that's, you know, a responsible, measured uh, comment based on what we know to be true. Uh, there's also this from Slate.com. Yeah, I know. Slate.com. Why the silent spread of coronavirus might actually be a good sign. Uh, on Wednesday, CDC announced a suspected uh, case of uh, the coronavirus in a patient who met none of the screening criteria for the disease. There was no travel areas to have uh, known to have uh, cases, no exposure to any sick person suspected of or confirmed to have the virus. Patient is being treated at UC Davis Medical Center. And he suggests that uh, actually this might be a good thing in this sense Most public health officials now feel the widespread infection outside of the current hot zones like China and South Korea is no longer a matter of if, but when. So containing the virus is not going to be completely possible. So just how bad will the cases be is the operative question. And um, uh, uh, Jeremy Samuel Faust, the author of this piece in left-wing outlet, Slate.com, so what is the case of the young and otherwise healthy patient contracting the uh, virus or contracting you know, the infection, despite no obvious exposure to a contagious source, uh, imply there are, that there are likely many asymptomatic cases in our communities already. 
asymptomatic transmission that has already been reported in China. In the first reported case, the source patient transmitted the infection to others but never became sick herself. It turns out to be a common, if it if this turns out to be common, and it, it's the reports are this is anecdotal. I don't have data to uh, give you percentages per se, although there has been uh, a number thrown out that of the worldwide cases so far, you know, 80% have not required hospitalization. But uh, it, as uh, Faust writes, if this turns out to be common, asymptomatic presentation, it's a good thing. It implies that the case fatality rate uh, of this uh, coronavirus is likely to be far, far lower than the reported statistics. Right. Yes, that is uh, a pretty good inference. Uh, one more, and perhaps the most shocking case of uh, making sense, from uh, former Clinton-era HHS director and now congresswoman from Florida, Donna Shalala. This uh, uh, political reporting, this briefing that House Republicans, along with Senate Republicans and the uh, the lead health appropriator in the House, Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut. Uh, they were getting a briefing from public health officials, and DeLauro took the opportunity to behave like a New York Times op-ed writer and excoriate the White House and the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus, arguing about funding and so on and so forth. And uh, this uh, briefing, uh, after Delora went on her tirade. Several Republicans left, but it wasn't just Republicans. Donna Shalala. Donna Shalala said that Delora's, her colleagues, diatribe missed the purpose of the meeting. No one wanted to hear that, her tirade against the Trump administration, playing politics with it. Either the Democrats or Republicans, we just wanted to hear the substance. Of course, Delora was unapologetic because she's talking about uh, dollars and cents. And uh, how would she know? Or how can the administration know how much in terms of additional resources are needed when scientists don't even know how coronavirus spreads and can't really put a number on projections about the number to be infected versus the number to be hospitalized versus the number that could face life uh, that, 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 for which the illness could be life threatening? I mean, it's just cheap politics, transparently so. And it's nice to get... Um, some backup, some postpartisan thinking and discussion happening from erstwhile, you know, Praetorian guards of the left like Shalala and Slate.com. This is the Dan Proft Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, it only took three decades and three presidential runs, and Joe Biden finally won an election, South Carolina primary, going away on Saturday, of course, and declaring that this is no dead cat bounce, which is what I think it is. They're alive again, the Biden folks, thanks to South Carolina. Thank you, thank you, thank you, South Carolina! And my buddy Jim Clyburn, you brought me back! It's a man of enormous integrity. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Yes, but will it be their campaign after tomorrow night? Uh, Joe Biden with the message 
Nice. This is a nice little turn of a phrase, and you don't get to say that very often about Joe Biden. A bit of a twofer here in uh, distinguishing himself from Bernie and Bloomy. And if the Democrats want a nominee who's a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, a proud Democrat, an Obama-Biden Democrat, join us. Just when he thought it was starting to get better for Joe Biden, you wouldn't have another gaffe to talk about. He went on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday and closed out the interview this way. <laughs> Mr. Vice President, thank you. Thanks for your time. Please come back in less than 13 years, sir. All right, Chuck. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. Uh, it's Chris, I mean, but anyway. Chris. I just did Chris. No, no, I, I, I just did Chuck. I tell you what, man, these are back-to-back. Anyway, no, it's I don't okay. know how you do it early in the morning, too. Safe tra- travels on the campaign it. trail. Thank you, sir. Uh, for more on the state of play with uh, Mannequin Pete and Tom Steyer dancing off the stage, uh, not uh, suspending their campaigns, we're pleased to be joined by Andy Crawl, who's the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. He was in South Carolina talking to voters, and he asks himself this question, which he tried to answer, can any of these people actually beat Donald Trump? Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. You went down there. You uh, talked to a lot of voters, as you recount in your piece in Rolling Stone. You know, what's the net net of the question that you posed? Can any of these individuals, starting with Biden, beat Trump? It wasn't encouraging if you're a Democrat based on what I saw in South Carolina. You know, I went and checked out rallies for all the major candidates, but especially with an eye on Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who seem to be emerging as probably the last men standing with Bloomberg being the wild card here. And what you saw was not super impressive, not living up to the hype. I mean, Joe Biden, honestly, I think that older black voters are the most loyal voters of the Democratic Party, and they voted for him as much for a desire to return to the Obama years. And as a, as a they seen that as sort of a return to normalcy. More than anything, Joe Biden himself actually said or campaigned on, to be honest. And in terms of Bernie Sanders, he is campaigning on a revolution. He's campaigning on putting together this huge, broad, multiracial coalition of voters. And that just didn't happen in South Carolina, the first of the four primary opening states that has the largest minority population. You know, I want to pick up on that phrase that uh, Biden used at his uh, victory night celebration. If you want a Democrat, I'm a Democrat, basically, uh, because Michael Bloomberg has been politically promiscuous. Bernie Sanders has never identified straight away as a member of the Democrat Party. But it seems to me there's a problem with that, even though it's a cute line and it distinguishes him. The problem is he's asking people to vote for a label. And those two individuals are asking people to vote for a quality. Uh, The quality, as you mentioned, with Bernie is revolution. The quality with Bloomberg is competence. I would even adjust the Bloomberg label. And this is a piece I'm actually working on at the moment. Competence basically being money. When you talk to Democrats yeah. who are Bloomberg supporters, as I did over a couple of days in North Carolina this past weekend, honestly, what I heard was, was money. And it was the organization he's building and the effects that Bloomberg could have down ballot if he were the nominee. So I wouldn't even say competence for him. But back to your larger point, I think the labels that you've identified are pretty much what these candidates have laid out. I think what you're really going to see is a classic left versus center, center left election, whether Bloomberg or Biden is that center left candidate. Bernie clearly has staked out the leftmost lane, the revolution lane, the democratic socialist lane. 
And I think after Super Tuesday, but maybe by the end of March, we're going to see the race consolidated down to one sort of representative of the left, one representative of the sort of center-left, moderate wing. And it's going to come down to those two visions in the final, really in the final months of the campaign and probably even going into the convention, which means it's going to be ugly. It's going to be a battle right to Milwaukee over whether it's those labels or just, you know, this vision for the Democratic Party in the era of Trump, which feels as uncertain now as it has in a while. Well, and I want to get your take on whether or not pairing itself down the primary to uh, two candidates by the end of March will be too late to uh, prevent Bernie Sanders from being the nominee from the perspective of some of the establishmentarians. More with Andy Kroll, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone, right after this. She said, don't hand me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. Exposed political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Andy Crawl, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone, talking about uh, not only Saturday's primary, but, of course, looking ahead to tomorrow's Super Tuesday elections in uh, 14 states with a third of the delegates at stake. And uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, over the weekend, having his own sort of Ross Perot moment with a, a three-minute televised uh, address on coronavirus and uh, what the response should be versus what it's been in his estimation. He also uh, did a 60 Minutes interview in which he said, if you're sick, do you really want to go to a doctor who is politically correct or one that knows how to treat your disease? And um, the interesting thing about uh, that statement is um, I get that it may help Bloomberg to try to uh, refocus people's attention away from what Elizabeth Warren wants people to focus on, which is NDAs and the like. But um, that's a, that statement also works actually pretty well for a Trump reelection campaign message. It does work well, and it's a, honestly kind of a curious statement from Bloomberg. I mean, he is running to be the Democratic nominee, but he is also at the same time trying to sort of stake out this almost centrist position that would possibly pull off some potential Trump voters, those ones that may be on the cusp still deciding or a little bit disillusioned by the president and try to pull some of those off into his camp. And so what you see with Bloomberg in that coronavirus statement or in that interview with 60 Minutes is make that pitch to maybe those possibly Republican voters in November. I mean, the, the curious thing about Bloomberg, though, is that he still has to win the Democratic nomination. He still needs to do well in Super Tuesday to really have any hope of continuing onward and stopping Bernie Sanders from running away with the delegate race. And so it's interesting to see Bloomberg putting forward that general election message almost when really what's in front of him is what's going to happen on Tuesday. And if he has a poor showing, this half billion dollar experiment of his will probably have been for naught. Uh, Nate Silver over at 538 uh, tweeted out after uh, Buttigieg dropped out over the weekend that uh, his dropping out may increase the likelihood of a contested convention. He was polling at less than 15 percent almost everywhere on Super Tuesday, meaning he was tracking a very few delegates, but his votes will help other candidates get over 15 percent and get some delegates. And that may well be true, but the existence of uh, Bloomberg and Biden sort of cancel out to some extent, it would appear based on polling right now, 
Bloomberg and Biden and provide maybe more likelihood that it's a broker convention, but also more likelihood that there'll be a wider separation in the delegate count between Bernie and who's ever in second and third place, making uh, Bernie's argument all the more stronger at the uh, convention that, hey, look, I piled up a real plurality, even if I didn't get to the majority. How do you discount that? It's ironic to get to this place right now. Bloomberg, by all indications, got into the race and is spending the money that he is based on the theory that Joe Biden was the weak front runner, that once people started voting, he would collapse and there would not be a strong, credible, moderate, centrist um, Democratic candidate. And that's the, the space that Bloomberg would fill. With Biden's win in South Carolina and the bump that comes with that, now whether it's a dead cat's bounce, as you know or not, we'll see in Super Tuesday, but it still gives Biden a bit of momentum coming out of South Carolina. You might see a situation in which Biden and Bloomberg are almost at a similar strength and maybe split that vote. And Bernie has the left lane to himself. I mean, it's, it's, it's likely that you could see Buttigieg people scatter between Bernie and Biden or Bernie and Bloomberg. And so Buttigieg is dropping out. Steyer is dropping out. Those things play into Bernie's hand as well as the two more moderate candidates. And so I think the Bloomberg strategy, we'll see on Super Tuesday. It's too early to say right now, but there's a possibility that it almost backfires with what Bloomberg himself wanted to do in the first place and why he got into the race in the first place. I wanted you to, to recount this other piece that you penned for Rolling Stone, your conversation with a, uh, a left-wing activist, uh, Michael Hutner. Uh, decades in the trenches of of progressive politics, and he's a a Bloomberg supporter. And so you're trying to kind of crawl inside his head and understand what is attractive about Bloomberg to a real die-in-the-wool progressive, and what's the answer? The answer is a real pragmatism about who can win and who can beat Donald Trump. Hutner's theory is that it will take a massive campaign operation in almost all 50 states, well-funded, with someone who can appeal to those, again, maybe those wavering, undecided, possible Trump voters and to pull them to the other side of the aisle. It's a really, it really boils down to that. Hutner, and I, you know, I sought out Hutner because he is a dyed-in-the-wool progressive who's done a lot of things on the left, a lot of success on the left, and he's a Mike Bloomberg guy. And I just thought to myself, why on earth does he support Mike Bloomberg? So I'll just call him up and I'll ask him. And it really comes down to this question of he thinks it's going to take resources, organization, and a crossover appeal to beat the incredibly motivated, to beat Donald Trump in the incredibly motivated, galvanized Republican base. And in Hutner's case, only Mike Bloomberg is the candidate he thinks can do that the way the race looks right now. And now maybe there's an opportunity for um, for a, a Bloomberg, although I don't know, he's probably about as well positioned for this vote as uh as Tom Steyer, although he was polling pretty well among African-American voters in South Carolina, second to Biden. Uh, of course, he wasn't on the ballot, so it's hard to know how that would have played out. But but uh, there's a it seems to me an opportunity, and that is to blame Bernie Sanders for the breakup of public enemy. Uh, what about that? Uh, with with uh, Flava Flav and Chuck D being at opposite sides of uh, being Bernie bros and Chuck D exiling Flava Flav. I mean, you know, you, you cast Bernie as like the Yoko Ono uh, to public enemy. You know, maybe you get rap fans like 
well, me, but I'm a conservative, but rap fans on the left to say, Bernie, how could you break up public enemy? Let me tell you that Rolling Stone readers are extremely fired up about this public enemy casting out of Flavor Flav. And I, you know, I think that our readership also overlaps with the Bernie support in a very interesting, in very interesting ways, at least, you know, some of our younger readers. So I think that there is a real, um, you know, wrenching decision at play here. You know, yeah. With Bernie, or do you go with public enemy? And I think the feelings are a little too raw right now to know how that's going to play out for sure. <laughs> I, think that, I mean, as, you know, as a child of the 80s, I mean, seriously, uh, Fear of a Black Land is like one of the best rap albums ever. Andy Crawl, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks. To get up and get, get, get down. 911 is joking, yo, town. Get up and get, get, get down. Late 911, where's the late crowd? Get up and get, get, get down. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, end of the first hour, we did uh, SNL's send-up of Joe Biden in the context of a Pence presser on coronavirus. Uh, you also had Larry David on set to do his uh, Bernie Sanders, and um, this was his offering. Hey, wait! Wait a second! Hey, what about me possibly winning the nomination, huh? You gotta admit, folks, universal health care doesn't sound too crazy now, does it? Bernie, this is not the time to politicize this issue. Hey, I'm having the best week of my freaking life. I had a little setback in South Carolina, but I'm ahead in the other polls. Wall Street billionaires are losing their shirts. And best of all, nobody wants to come near me, much less touch me. I'm in heaven. Yeah, and uh, also uh, not a proponent of Purell or hand sanitizers. Old-fashioned way, the Stalinist way. No, 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 no Purell. I got a bottle of that junk, and on the label, it says it kills 99.99% of germs. What happens to the top 0.01%? <laughs> protecting them. I say enough with the potions. Just use good old-fashioned bar soap and scalding hot water. Potions. I might get in trouble for saying this, but you know who was great at washing his hands? Joseph Stalin. (laughs) Also, uh, Bernie had a bit of a Biden moment. Uh, It's a gaffe, but, uh, you know, these these gentlemen approaching their uh, 80s, they have some... uh, Brain freezes, I suppose, uh, get confused. Uh, Bernie uh, confused about which private jet was his. That's a whole nother matter. He uh, got onto the got uh, uh, off or got onto the wrong jet uh, where after a, uh, a rally in South Carolina. And uh, it's interesting. There was also some tweeting about uh, the private jet use from these uh, Green New Dealers. Uh, and a pretty fair criticism, I would argue, uh, the uh, idea that uh, Bernie Sanders is on private jets at all and that he and Elizabeth Warren were spot, spotted boarding private aircraft uh, earlier in February 
as they both flew back uh, to D.C. from different locations, just 36 minutes apart. You know, maybe they could have flown together, you know, to reduce their carbon footprint. TMZ reporting on this uh, writes, most, if not all, the candidates fly private at some point. So if you critique one, you got to do them all. Uh, no, actually, you don't. No, no, you don't, because you can say some candidates are not hysterics and hypocrites and junk scientists promoting the idea that a, a private jet ride is going to end Western civilization. And others are named Joe Biden. Actually, well, yes, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg and Elizabeth Warren. So you don't actually have to pick your poison. You just have to recognize what is and isn't poison there, PMT. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com, where our podcasts are, as well as they are on iTunes and Spotify and the rest. Uh, also on social media, Twitter, at Dan Proft or at Dan Proft Show. Both work. And on Facebook, the same. Dan Proft Show is the handle. Uh, big news, historic news on Saturday out of Qatar. The U.S. and Taliban agreed to a peace deal, a peace deal that would call for the U.S. to pull out uh, the remaining forces, our remaining armed forces out of Afghanistan over the next 14 months. In exchange, the Taliban pledged to discuss a long term ceasefire with the Afghan government, as well as to prevent militant groups like Al Qaeda from using the country to plan strikes against the West. Uh, this is uh, uh, arguably uh, one of. Uh, Trump's commitments during the campaign to get America out of so-called endless wars in the Middle East and South Asia. After almost two decades, 90,000 Afghans, uh, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan citizens killed, 2,400 U.S. service members killed since 2001. And um, Trump saying that uh, he is going to meet with Taliban leaders soon. Look forward to a drawdown of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, but also recognize if things go bad, then we can always go back. Jim Hansen, who's a uh, former U.S. Army Special Forces and Security Studies Group president now, said it was the right decision by President Trump from an array of not, uh, of not very good options. And that's what a good leader does, makes a tough but smart call when it would be easier simply to maintain the status quo. And I would add that this is something the president has wanted to find a way out of for some time, even when he has announced his desire for troop withdrawal, troop drawdowns, for much less uh, complete withdrawal. He's received pushback from some in the military industrial complex. And um, so this has been uh, uh, something that his administration has been looking for a way to achieve for some time. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Spore, who's the director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. So uh, do you agree with um, Jim Hansen that uh, this was the best option from an array of not very good options? Yeah, I think what the president has put together here is uh, worth a try. You know, we have been disappointed by Taliban in the past, but that doesn't mean we should never try again. And so I think this is a useful opportunity 
to see if we can actually have some peace in Afghanistan. I mean, it's sort of like uh, not comparing the, the the severity or the importance of it, uh, but it's sort of like doing a trade deal with the Chinese. You almost expect that they won't honor it. But if you don't try to forge some kind of deal, what are your other options? Your other option is to continue a trade war, in my uh, comparison, or to continue actual war in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think continued fighting is really not in anybody's best interest, except maybe if you're a senior leader in the Taliban, and this is how you now make your living. But you hear that the lower-level fighters of the Taliban are actually tired of fighting, that they just soon have some peace, and so... This might be an opportunity to get to that place. Well, what, what uh, as we're hopefully getting to that place where American soldiers can come home and this uh, seemingly endless war is ended, what, what are the lessons from Afghanistan, not just here, but, I mean, goodness gracious, uh, lessons we should have known going in, you know, from going back to Alexander the Great, um, uh, and certainly more recently with uh, the so-called Charlie Wilson's War of aiding the uh, Mujahideen against the Soviets in the 80s. What what are lessons that we should have known and at at minimum now should learn from the last 20 years? I think the United States needs to be realistic when it sets objectives uh, for a conflict. So we've gone uh, in various places with Afghanistan. At some some places we were attempting to rebuild a lot of the country, uh, new schools, new clinics, new everything, and that uh, did not succeed. And so I think we have to be much more uh, realistic about what our objectives are, what do we hope to accomplish, and when is it time to leave. And that that has been kind of a moving target for the United States. It, did uh, the U.S. Uh, Secretary Pompeo and uh, his team, did they extract enough, even if there's skepticism about uh, whether or not the Taliban will honor it, did they extract enough, at least in in uh, in theory, from the Taliban to uh, provide a, a smooth exit? It's really a lot to be seen. The, the actual document that they signed is not very specific about the requirement for the Taliban to actually negotiate with the government of Afghanistan that is there now. And so, and in fact, the Taliban, you know, does not even recognize the government of Afghanistan in its current state. And so there's a lot of work to be done between the Taliban to get them talking to the government in place. The agreement kind of suggests that, but it it is not very specific. If they can't get past that, I worry that this we're not going to find peace. Uh, I want to switch gears and get your take on this uh, extensive piece that uh, Angelo Cotavia and others wrote at, in uh, the American Mind about uh, CIA and FISA, you know, uh, focusing on reforming our own uh, statecraft or agencies that uh, help uh, provide the statecrafting, I suppose, uh, CIA and FISA specifically. And uh, in the uh, paper, uh, Professor Cotevilla argues the CIA is obsolete, uh, that uh, cables uh, show agents' intelligence takes are inferior to diplomats, agent networks are unprotected by counterintelligence, what the CIA should, uh, what should happen at the CIA is for it to be uh, disestablished and its functions returned to the Departments of State, Defense, and Treasury, uh, where they're better positioned to carry out the intelligence gathering uh, uh, dispersed over those agencies rather than in this CIA that has become, um, well, it's uh, suffered a little bit from mission creep and a lot from partisanship and uh, institutional inertia, 
and it needs to be disestablished. Yeah, honestly, uh, with respect to the author, I find that suggestion almost laughable. Okay. Uh, the CIA is really an effective organization. They have provided great support to the United States Armed Forces, to the president, to others uh, with intelligence that no other agency uh, is capable of providing. They had in the past, I think they had their own fleet of predator drones. I think that has slowly diminished, and I think most of the, if you will, the conventional force-on-force uh, -force type of missions have returned to their proper place in the military. And so, you know, I think you would talk to most anyone in the CIA, and they would they would tell you the agency itself has not become politicized, that um, it is actually very professional and one of the best organizations we have in the United States for protecting our freedoms. But that the self-policing, uh, as well as congressional oversight, of course, needs to get better because the CIA certainly has suffered uh, a crisis of confidence among a large segment of the population, not the entire population, but to varying degrees in various instances, uh, wide swaths of the population, particularly under most recently CIA Director Brennan, and that continues. And that uh, obviously undermines the legitimacy of all of those professional agents you're speaking of. And, of course, we have the same dynamic at FBI. Yeah, you know, I have been dismayed to see uh, the actions of uh, Director Brennan, you know, being so overtly uh, partisan. I think that more recent leaders have kind of struck a more even keel. And I, and I think, the re at least for the people I deal with, the reputation of the CIA remains pretty solid. If they if they're telling you something, it's something you can uh, pretty much count on. What about um, a FISA? Um, the argument made here, and it's not just by Cotavia, that uh, the the mingling of judicial and executive power in secret is problematic. And uh, Barr, Attorney General Barr, seems to have confidence in the reforms that Director Ray, FBI Director Ray, has proposed. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people see now FISA in the wake of the Russian collusion investigation and the FBI's performance in that investigation as sort of um, unsalvageable. Yeah, I can understand how people feel that way. Again, uh, I think the FISA is a, a very valuable tool in the hands of law enforcement and that um, in the end, the system worked out. Uh, the, the errors that the FBI corrected or committed in uh, pursuing warrants and that type of thing have, have ultimately come to light, and I think the system is self-correcting in such a manner that uh, I doubt we'll have such a problem again. And you believe uh, Christopher Wray, FBI director, uh, as does Attorney General Barr, is genuine in his commitment to see those reforms through and, and abided? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've heard him speak on this topic a number of times. He always comes through sincerely with the best interests of the country uh, at heart, and so I'm, I'm fairly confident that he they're doing the right thing today over at the FBI. All right. He is Tom Spore. He's the director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Tom, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, let's take a bit of a mental health break from war and viruses and electoral politics in the West and uh, talk a little bit about uh, beauty. How about that? Uh, I was struck by this piece in the American Conservative, Why Star Wars is Better at Urban Planning Than Real Planners, and uh, I've read it, and it included a Mystery Science Theater 3000 reference, which cemented my desire for our next guest, the author of this piece, Matthew Robert, a freelance journalist based in Boston. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Uh, so um, you, you, you end your piece, and let's start there, because I think it, you can uh, develop it from there. Uh, maybe new real estate development should be thea- theatrically storyboarded as well as architecturally rendered, talking about how we interact in public spaces and why uh, those who... Uh, create some of our favorite movies are better urban planners than the urban planners. Yeah, if you go to a uh, public meeting where um, they they show these these renderings of the of proposed buildings or developments, it's all it's all static imagery. So you don't get a sense of how you move through the space. Right, and and so and I mean so you thinking about um, uh, public spaces as places for human interaction. Uh, my sense is what you argue is that um, that's that's all. It's often conveyed in some of our favorite movies and favorite scenes from our favorite movies. You mentioned how uh, in all the Star Wars movies, most of the environments where you see the characters are um, are, are are in uh, landscapes that they can walk around and interact. Um, but uh, when it comes to urban planning, uh, it, it's a, it's a little bit less so. And so, just sort of art inspiring, maybe some of how we. Uh, shape our reality exactly and so so i mean th- thinking about this what why is that important why is it important to reflect in uh reality what we see on the screen it you know may look good in a, a fictional planet in star wars why should it be part of the landscape in a big city the biggest reason is that it just tends to work better i mean we demolished huge sections of our cities to build highways and they become very unpleasant places to be they're full of parking lots and you can't walk across the street because of the eight lanes of traffic if you look at sort of the more walkable places in the country they produce more tax revenue for for city services there are more retail sales the property values are higher people even even live longer and have have more community and more interaction with their neighbors. I mean, it's sort of a dichotomy in a sense, right? I mean, so many of these are urban developments. There's a an emphasis on green space. You know, we're going to provide X amount of green space or X amount of community space. And it's sort of like as a way to uh, to to uh, provide a glide path to the overall project rather as something central to the project. And what I sort of get you to be arguing is that, you know, those green spaces or community spaces should be more central because, um, you know, that's the way we interact. You, you write in your piece that um, uh, we as citizens are performer and spectator. Exactly. They, uh, if you look at a lot of, a lot of the green spaces, they're just it's like a little piece of grass with a tree and a bench, and it's right next to this huge roadway. So if you actually sat on the bench, you'd be just inhaling a bunch of fumes from the cars going by all day. Right. It's it's shoehorned in until you're a spectator to like right the concrete jungle rather than a spectator to uh, oh, oh, rather than something yeah. that's communitarian in part. Right. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it's it's just, uh, I, you know, I just think about this. Obviously, you have a higher population density, and so you have space issues. So I think where where I live uh, uh, in downtown Chicago, I'm near Lake Michigan. So there's some green space, and then there's the lake right there and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, uh, but but it still is, is somewhat difficult to have those communitarian experiences I think you're talking about, um, even if you can walk a couple blocks to get a lot of things done and to have different, go to a bowling alley, go to a movie theater, these other uh, excursions you can access. It's just difficult, I think, to have that sort of um, organic experience with other human beings in part because of the the density and the premium on space, right? I disagree. I mean, if you look at a lot of like, sort of like old Italian cities from from the Middle Ages, they're all they're all packed in like sardines compared to any American city. And uh, and they're famous for their, their community. In the American conservative, uh, Rod Dreher writes a lot about the uh, about Siena, life there, and the, the Palio, the big annual horse race, and how all the little neighborhoods of Siena uh, contribute teams and are almost and are really competitive with each other. Yeah, you, you just going back to film to go. I just think it's an interesting uh, way to to uh, to uh, tackle this. You talk about Hollywood making films that actually make places uh, that are or at least look more humane to live in, and um, and so that's part of being a good storyteller, having uh, presenting something that has aesthetic, emotional appeal, and you know Hollywood for all their faults. Uh, Many in Hollywood are pretty good storytellers, so it it tells us or reflects something about our humanity uh, in some of the films, including those that you describe. Oh, definitely. We need beauty to live. We need aesthetics, and we we're sort of missing that from our from our cities. I mean, and Hollywood is really good at picking up on that, which is why in a lot of in a lot of films that involve religion, they depict a Catholic church with a something more like the traditional Latin mass. And you don't see that in in far too many churches. Yeah, um, it, it, just this idea of beauty too, because this is at least in part what you're getting to. And I, um, I uh, recently uh, listened to a talk from uh, the poet Dana Joya that was posted over at FirstThings.com, and and that's what he was zeroing in on too. I mean, the importance of beauty both for secular as well as sacred reasons, because it it sort of helps us better understand ourselves as well as ourselves within the world. And it seems to me when you're talking about some real estate developments, you're sort of getting to the same thing that, that he's getting to more generally. Oh, yeah. Uh, James Matthew Wilson has a great book called The Vision of the Soul. And uh, one of the things he talks about is this this sort of traditional concept of beauty in Western philosophy uh, is based on integrity, proportion, and clarity, which are a little hard to define, but the upshot of it is that it sort of points to a sort of space for humanity where we sort of know our place, and it's not too far down below, and it's also not too far above. We're sort of rightly positioned to see the truth of the universe. It, it's funny because uh, you know George Lucas, when he was uh, pitching locations for uh, his uh, Star Wars museum, effectively, you know, it was more than that, but that's the handle. And uh, there was a rendering of what it would look like on the lakefront in Chicago before he chose uh, another uh, another city. Um, it was it was sort of a little bit ghastly and rather uh, sterile from looking at the artist's rendering of the outside. 
but it was on but it was also going to be on the lakefront where you have campuses that are communitarian in nature so you know you can argue about the aesthetics of the actual structure but it's in a place that uh is walkable to your point about the star wars movies and about uh about these developments more generally yeah a a good environment can save a bad building uh, a good building can save a bad environment <laughs> that's a good summary yeah that's a, it's a good, pretty good handle uh rules of the road for architecture he is matthew robert freelance journalist based in boston check out his piece which i'll uh, tweet out uh over at the american why star wars is better urban planning than real planners matthew thanks so much for joining us appreciate it thank you Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, over the weekend, in addition to Tom Steyer's gambit coming to an end, Mayor Pete Buttigieg flew back to South Bend to uh, remind us why he was given any credibility as a presidential candidate to begin with before announcing that he, too, is departing the scene. And we sent a message to every kid out there wondering if whatever marks them out as different means they are somehow destined to be less than. To see that someone who once felt that exact same way can become a leading American presidential candidate with his husband at his side. Mm-hmm. Identitarian politics, of course, you're going to get varieties of that from every one of the candidates other than other than Bolshevik Bernie. His identitarian form of politics is, of course, the class struggle, Marx style. Uh, but then uh, Mayor Pete made the big announcement. Our goal has always been to help unify Americans to defeat Donald Trump and to win the era for our values. And so we must recognize that at this point in the race, the best way to keep faith with those goals and ideals is to step aside and help bring our party and our country together. So tonight, I am making the difficult decision to suspend my campaign for the presidency. I will no longer seek to be the 2020 Democratic nominee for president, but I will do everything in my power to ensure that we have a new Democratic president come January. Yeah, well, that's not going to be enough. But uh, the good news is he can return to the men's department at that Macy's in Mishawaka and model the spring line of Kenneth Cole's suit. So, you know, his old job. For more on the state of play in the Democrat primary for POTUS, we're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, financier, columnist and member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm happy to be here and thanks for asking me. Uh, so with respect to uh, the consolidation of the race down to a few, arguably two, perhaps three, uh, you write in uh, amgreatness.com that uh, this is just uh, a sort of uh, um, the salmon continuing to swim upstream to spawn before they uh, before they pass away and a new generation of salmon <laughs> take their place, that this is just a slow moving political suicide for the current iteration of the Democrat Party. I think they've got ways of avoiding that. Um, if it's Biden or Bloomberg, or I think the only alternatives to Sanders, I think they'll lose fairly, fairly decisively, but it wouldn't be suicide. 
if they go all the way with Senator Sanders, I, I think I think they'll lose every state. The first time since President Monroe in 1820. You you think that you think they lose all 50? I mean, they're going to lose places like California and Illinois and New York and New Jersey. Really? Even even those with Sanders? Yes, I think so. And and the debate. I, I think they would yeah. carry D.C. It wouldn't be a complete sweep in the electoral college. And and uh, why even deep blue states like that? Why do you say? I mean, it seems like he's got a base plus some, you know, general appeal for voters under the age of forty-five. He's he's got that, but uh, I don't see him getting over about thirty-five percent of the countrywide total. Now, in 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 California, I, I agree he'd be in the forties, even the upper forties. But even in that state, which which is a place where things have gone horribly wrong from. Uh, well, you know, the California I remember when you know Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan were their, were their leading figures. Uh, I, I think a majority will not buy into Marxism. Uh, you uh, reference in your piece uh, Bloomberg as uh, the uh, sort of the establishment's uh, deus ex machina, and it hasn't quite worked out that way, although we'll see what he does tomorrow. Um, but uh, what is preventing uh, Bloomberg from, you know, consolidating the anti-Bernie vote? Well, it seems that the the party elders are going to give it one more try with Joe Biden. And now if that doesn't work. The, the, Bloomberg is all they've got, and and they'll do their best. But uh, I mean, he he clearly has some baggage. People, as many of us suspected, and I think I think probably including you, the, the, there are many Democrats who resent just selling their party, and that's what this has been. This has been the most brazen vote buying exercise in the history of the world. <laughs> Nothing like this has ever happened. Uh, and the other part of it is he has bombed badly in the debates. He, he's, uh, he comes across as a, as a know-it-all New Yorker who thinks the world is fixated on the Big Apple, and he thinks it's just like running for CEO of a business. He talks about running the country, the best person to manage. Well, there's that aspect, of course. And the only businessman you've ever had in that job up to now is Trump. But but, uh, it, but it is more than that. It is not just management. It's leadership. Uh, we're we're going to be back with Conrad Black for more financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords. I want to talk a little bit of class politics as well as uh, an argument that uh, China is the model for combating the coronavirus spread. And that's coming out of uh, British academia, of all places. More with uh, Lord Black right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Conrad Black, financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords. And uh, I wanted to get your take on this uh, argument advanced by Joel Kotkin in a recent piece in uh, Quillette.com about the two middle classes. He talks about uh, the traditional middle class, the yeomanry, uh, consisting of small business owners, minor landowners, craftsmen, artisans. And the other middle class, which is in its ascendancy, called the, uh, that he uses, he borrows a term from Coleridge, the clerisy a group that makes its living largely in quasi-public institutions, notably universities, media, and the nonprofit world, the upper bureaucracy, the managerial class, uh, as uh, Michael Lynn terms it in his recent book, and that uh, there is uh, the, the managerial class in the middle-income strata are ascendant, and the yeomanry are uh, 
uh, are are worried about their country. And uh, that anxiety among the yeomanry is something that the Democrats, even Bernie, with his populist appeal, haven't been able to quite capture the imagination of. And and this presents a real problem and it presents a continuing revolt by the yeomanry against the clerisy. Yeah, I think that's substantially right. Uh, you can you can set this up in different ways, and that's one of them. I mean, I mean one of the more frequently employed ones is the uh, approach through individual rights, the sovereignty of the individual, the free will of, of citizens uh, against this collectivism. And um, you you get various formulations of it, but the one you just you just gave is is a time honored one. And it has a good deal of application right now. And what about uh, with respect to the coronavirus and its spread and concern in the West? And, of course, this is being uh, exacerbated by uh, reckless, hysterical media reporting. But nonetheless, the idea that uh, with the market's performance last week, with talk of supply chains that are that have the, the, the potential exposure to be disrupted, the idea of more populist momentum in the direction of um, of uh, Fortress America, the direction of moving or cajoling, uh, incentivizing companies to onshore their supply chains, get out of uh, doing business with Chinese communists and other uh, faraway lands. I would doubt that the uh, uh, virus epidemic would have too much impact on that. Uh, I think that the evaluation of it politically is nothing like as promising as the Democrats are are agitating and and claiming already. Uh, In order for them to gain from it, the administration has to be seen to mismanage it. It has to be a you're doing a great job brownie moment (laughs) where Trump congratulates Pence on doing brilliantly. And in fact, they've made a complete shambles of it. As long as the administration uh, continues to appear to be, and in fact to be, uh, really managing it as well as anyone could, acting uh, ahead of events and and showing maximum concern for the interests and health of the country in the United States, it'll get through it all right. It shouldn't ramify too far in, in foreign affairs. The the danger would be if if they leave any uh, chink in their armor where their enemies in the media can say the the administration has botched this and uh, thousands of people have suffered grave illness because of it. And and your assessment, it seems to me so far, is that the administration has done a, a fairly effective job, uh, as effective as one can do at this stage. I've been very impressed both with, with, with the vice president and the health and human services secretary, Azar. They, they answered questions fully, knowledgeably, no, no shilly-shallying, shifting weight from one foot to the other, as we're accustomed to. We all do it sometimes, but our politicians particularly do it a lot. Uh, I, my impression is they're right on it and realize it's terribly important, and, and they have to give it a maximum effort. And it appears that the president did move ahead of time and, and has now been criticized for not asking for enough money. Uh, there's also this. Uh, this is just, uh, to me, sort of a remarkable letter in The Guardian by uh, associate professor in Chinese politics at the University of St. Andrews named Chris Ogden. 
uh, he argues that uh, perhaps the U.K. needs to be a little bit more like China, at least in the short term, to halt the coronavirus outbreak. He suggests that actually China has done an impressive job uh, writing. It's difficult to imagine the U.K. or other Western countries being able to react with such speed. Not only are our capabilities less inclined and less numerous to allow for such a fast deployment, so to our populations, less co- uh, conditioned to openly follow the will of our leaders. And he says, look, uh, China can shut down cities, travel networks, entire regions, even the Internet. Uh, and that uh, authori- those authoritarian tools make uh, China the model to deal with such a crisis. It's, it's sort of a remarkable uh, analysis, given the spread of uh, coronavirus in a place like China versus, say, places like oh, Taiwan or Singapore, much less in the West, like the United States or, the, or Britain. Yeah, it is. But with all of that, it appears that China started late, it denied the extent of the public health danger, and they're just doing catch up now. But, but, but apart from any of that, the idea of turning the British and English and Scottish especially into behavioral lookalikes of the Chinese is one of the dumbest projects I've ever heard of. <laughs> but, but not not on, uh, 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 not surprising coming from The Guardian. Well, and, and coming from academia, I suppose, as well. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the, what's the old saying about uh, ideas so stupid that only an academic could believe them? But you, it is interesting. And The Guardian, yeah. remember, went all through the 30s telling us that Stalin was a pillar of jurisprudence. The show trials were fair. The treatment of the uh, small farmers was perfectly just. And like the New York Times uh, said that Hitler was nothing to worry about. He's just using anti-Semitism to get votes. And he also remember Walter Durante, who, who said pretty much the same things about Stalin as the Guardian did. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable. But, uh, you you know, this is in the public sphere. So you want to address him. And I'm glad uh, that you were able to do that. He is Lord Conrad Black, financier, columnist and member of the British House of Lords. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Always a Dan Prof Show, as uh, mentioned uh, earlier in the program, Mike Bloomberg did a Ross Perot-style paid television address on Sunday evening, three minutes this time, no charts or graphs, a la Perot, but uh, a statement about uh, how a President Bloomberg would handle the coronavirus spread, what the coordinated response would be, how he would manage this crisis, obviously the implication being as distinguished from the Trump administration. Here's uh, some of what uh, Mini Mike, as Trump calls him, and did over the weekend. We'll get to that, had to say. Good evening. I know this has been a very worrisome week for many Americans. The coronavirus is spreading and the economy is taking a hit. Markets have fallen because of uncertainty. 
At times like this, it's the job of the president to reassure the public that he or she is taking all the necessary steps to protect the health and well-being of every citizen. The public wants to know their leader is trained, informed, and respected. When a problem arises, they want someone in charge who can marshal facts and expertise to confront the problem. They want him or her to prepare for events like these in advance with teams of experts. Communications must be honest and transparent so people can be confident that professionals are in charge. Trust is essential. Are you still listening or have you tuned out? Yeah, I think that's what most people did, particularly against the backdrop of what the NIH and the public health professionals have actually said. They completely only complaining the American public is hearing about uh, the magic number of financing for relevant government agencies is from House Democrats. And frankly, not even the president. You want to give me more money than I asked for? Give them fine. Give me more money. The president said weeks ago. So, I mean, it's just sort of a weak case. It's sort of the same type of argument you're hearing from Democrats about why the economy isn't as good as you think it is. Uh, Don't believe your lying eyes. Believe our ideologically inspired rhetoric. So there's Bloomberg. Uh, SNL had fun with Bloomberg, uh, not on his coronavirus address, but uh, on Elizabeth Warren continuing to be his shadow, pillaring him about things like NDA, stuff he doesn't want to talk about it, but it's been forced to. Hey, sure, why don't you start telling us what's in that NDA? Well, I keep telling you, it's nothing. It's just, I made a little joke to a female employee, and she didn't like it. Yeah, what was the joke? All right, knock, knock. (laughs) Who's there? Uh, It's your boss, Mike. Listen, get rid of that baby. (laughs) So ridiculous. Did you get it? Fred Arbison uh, does uh, spot on Bloomberg. And uh, Trump got in the fun, too, at CPAC over the weekend. Uh, A little bit of uh, parroting Mini Mike with some physical comedy. Uh, Something the crowd seemed to enjoy. He's going, oh, get me off of this stage. Get me off. Get me off of this stage. Yeah. And the uh, second time he said, get me off on the stage, the president, if you didn't see it, crouched down so that he was, you know, just barely above. Well, actually, the microphone was about uh, half a foot above him to do a little bit of a mini mic. Thanks for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow night. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.